When we talk about the microbiome, you have to talk about the food, the nutrition, you have to talk where this food comes from, how it's grown, the microbes in the soil. There's a planetary interconnectedness. So it's sort of expanded into a whole universe. The concept of interconnectedness, which obviously is at the center of contemplative practices and Buddhism, once you look at the world with, with different classes, it really explains a lot of the things that we have not taken into account, you know, how we interact with the world. We want to make it a positive thing, and um, I think we're in the midst of this revolution, this paradigm shift. That's my sense of optimism. Welcome to Mind and Life. I'm Wendy Hasenkamp. Today, we're looking at interconnection through a biological lens. And it's one that I've been increasingly interested in over the last several years. My guest is Emeron Meyer, a gastroenterologist who's become a renowned expert on our microbiome, the countless number of microorganisms that live on and in our bodies. He's also an author, a meditator, a researcher, and a professor at UCLA's medical school. We've learned so much in the last few decades about the crucial role our microbiome plays in physical and emotional health and its intricate links to our neurological and immune systems. Emeron provides a wonderful overview of all of this, and there's some pretty vast implications here about not only things like diet and stress, but also our relationship with nature, our standard agricultural and medical practices social justice and food equity, and even the way we conceive of ourselves. Emron and I take a deep dive into all of these topics. And if you're interested to learn more, definitely check out the show notes for this one. There's a lot more resources there. I've been just fascinated to follow what we're learning about the incredibly complex interactions between all the systems of our body, including our microbiome, and the more I learn, the more I feel like I'm getting a glimpse of the true nature and scale of the interconnectedness that we exist in. I hope this episode sheds some light on that for you, too. It's a pleasure to share with you Emeron Meyer. Well, I'm so pleased to be joined today by Emeron Meyer. Emeron, thanks so much for being here. Welcome. Yeah, Wendy, thanks for having me on the show. It's a real pleasure. Well, I'm really excited to dive into your work. Um, you are an expert on our microbiome and our gut, um, which we will totally get into and is a really fascinating area and something we haven't discussed very much on the show. But I think there's implications much larger than that as well, which I'm sure we'll get into. So first, I like to start uh, with a little bit of background from the guests. So I'm just curious for you personally, what led you to your studies in this area? I know you've had a long interest in the mind-body connection. Did that come first or did the microbiome come first? No, the, the interest in, in the mind-body connection came way before. You know, it was actually, that was my motivation to go to medical school. And I thought I was going to end up in psychiatry. But then the clinical experience of what psychiatry was like at that time in the 70s was not what I had in mind. So... With a lot of side stories, you know, I ended up in gastroenterology, which is an area where the majority of patients um, have symptoms that involve both the mind and the gut. So that became very clear to me early on. And uh, and then I've pursued this really in the beginning with a focus on irritable bowel syndrome. This was at the time the disease that lent itself most to these mind-brain-gut interactions. And then it's expanded mainly through the microbiome. It has expanded to 
a whole range of diseases and disorders that today are called brain-gut disorders. So that's really a relatively new thing, I would say, the last 10 years. And now my interest now ranges way beyond the initial interest in, in, in mind-body. It's included, if you talk about the microbiome, you have to talk about the food, the nutrition, you have to talk where this food comes from, how it's grown, you know, the microbes in the soil, right? planetary interconnectedness. So it's it's sort of expanded into a whole universe, really, uh, which suits me really well because that's what I was interested in when I was in college, you know. Oh, I love it. That's great. And and you also have, um, at least personally, an interest in contemplative practices and that side of things, too. Was that also alongside? Yeah, this has also been an interest of mine from the very beginning. With um, When I came to the U.S. in the late 70s for my specialty training in gastroenterology, I spent most of my weekends going to retreats and um, from Esalen to the Ojai Foundation and the Bay Area. And um, I, I was probably the only gastroenterology trainee who had that interest. <laughs> and, and I met a lot of very interesting people, joined the Zen Center in, in LA, in downtown LA. And then I have to admit, I mean, during the peaks of my career with constant traveling, spending more time in the air than on the ground, um, the contemplative techniques and practices really took a backstage for a while. Um, but it's it's really come back, you know, I would say the last 10 years or so with, you know, so there have been dimensions from both from this mind-gut connection to psychedelics, which became an area of interest of mine as well. And I still would love to see the studies of how psychedelics influence the gut microbes. Oh my goodness, yeah. This is definitely a component that right now nobody thinks about. But the same receptors, these serotonin receptors that psychedelics act on in the in the brain uh, or in the gut and actually are uh, on the microbes as well. So there's definitely be in the future a, a component. Uh, I won't be the person that's going to scientifically study that, but I, I would bet everything on it that this will become another dimension. Yeah, that's fascinating. Okay, well, there's so much to dive into here, and I know we won't be able to cover all of your interests and, and experience um, in this short time, but let's begin maybe with the microbiome. Can you give just a short explainer for listeners who might not be too familiar with what that is and what it does for us and with us? So the term microbiome really combines both the microbiota, which are the players, you know, who is there in the world of microbial organisms and what these microbes produce, what functions that they have. So microbiome is really both the structure, the architecture, but also the hundreds of millions of genes that they produce. And so microbes are everywhere. They're the oldest life form on the planet. Uh, they've lived in the oceans of planet Earth for billions of years. They have, uh, they've had enough time to perfect a communication system between each other. And there is, you know, there's tens of thousands of different microbes and they all have learned to speak the same language. And when the first marine animals appeared, some microbes decided to live inside of these marine animals, you know, and then this symbiosis developed between the gut of that primitive marine animal and, and the microbes. And that has essentially stayed for, for millions of years. Every animal has a microbiome. In, in the humans, it means the microbiome is everywhere on our body, on all our surfaces, 
But what's unique about the gut is it's where the highest density and concentration and amount of these microbes live. Microbes live from the mouth, actually, to the esophagus, to the stomach, very few in the stomach because of the acid that is really not a good environment. And then increasing amounts down the intestine, the highest amounts in the large intestine. And it's estimated there's about 40 trillion of these microbes living um, in our intestines. We know, I would say, we're just scratching on the surface, you know, what these microbes do, where they live, how they function, because we have relied mainly on stool samples, you know, to analyze who is there. And that's a mixture of everything from the mouth all the way down to the gut. What we now, what the science now is interested in is what substances do these microbes produce? What functions do they have? How do they interact producing these, these chemicals? And when I say chemicals, it's chemicals that are signaling molecules. They're part of the microbes language that they developed and stored in their hundreds of millions of genes. So they they were the first ones to speak that language. Our nervous system learned that language from them, first in the gut and then in the brain. And now when you think about it, all the higher levels of our brain functions go back to these microbes billions of years ago, how they came up with with, with the language. So yeah, I would say in the universe, our large intestine is exhibits the highest density of these microorganisms. And there are bacteria, fungi, and viruses. It's not just the bacteria. We know most about the bacteria. We know much less about the viruses and much less about the fungi. An important thing is everything inside in our gut. It's a pretty unusual environment. It's... Um, there's no light, there's no oxygen, and so it's all invisible. And it's probably one of the most complex ecosystems where the microbes, the fungi, the viruses interact with each other in a symbiotic way. And that symbiosis or this intactness of this ecosystem is really what makes up the health of our microbiome in the, in the simplest terms. Oh, that's amazing. I love what you said about how we learned the system of communication in our gut and then in our brain, you know, from these microorganisms who've been doing it for much longer than we have. That's really fascinating to think about. So that really speaks to the interconnections between the gut and our brains, right? You were just starting to speak to that. And that's one of the areas that you've uh, really studied deeply. So can you share a little bit more about that, how that's connected? Yeah, and this is, is actually, you know, understanding this shared language concept is essential for explaining why these microbes in the in the darkness inside of us would have anything to say to the brain that the brain would be interested in and, and vice versa, because this communication goes in both directions. You know, I mean, the microbes pretty much know every emotions that we're in, if we're angry, if we're anxious, if we're stressed. The microbes get the message from the brain and they have receptors on their surface. So if you release a stress hormone, the microbes will know that and they will change their gene expression and they'll change how they interact with us. So it's a bi-directional communication, really. Does the same thing go in the other direction? Like if we're eating something, maybe we have an intolerance or something like that. Is that sending kind of quote unquote threat signals or stress signals to our brains? 
Absolutely. So this is how this field initially exploded onto the scene. And that's what people were most fascinated by. Um, because we've known for a long time, you know, the top-down communication. But um, this bottom-up or how microbial signals can reach the brain, in simplistic terms, there's really three ways that they can do this, or three communication channels. So one is um, the microbes produce so-called neuroactive substances. So these are molecules that they generate from breakdown of our diet. So complex carbohydrates are broken down, for example, into these short-chain fatty acids, which have received a lot of attention because they have these anti-inflammatory effects on the gut, on the gut's nervous system, and on, and on the brain. But there's also many chemicals, so many neurotransmitter-like molecules, very similar to neurotransmitters in our brain that these microbes generate hmm. from the food we eat. So for example, tryptophan, you know, when the microbes chew it up, results in several so-called metabolites or breakdown products, which are very similar in structure to our neurotransmitters, and they interact with our receptors for these transmitters. So they've, that's one communication channel. Another one is the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve is this vast nerve that essentially innovates all of our organs and sends signals to the brain. 80%, 90% of the traffic in that vagus nerve goes from the gut to the brain. Uh, we, we never knew why that is the case. You know, why is there such a discrepancy in the numbers? And and now we know because the receptors for the for these microbial molecules are all on these vagal sensory terminals. So whatever the microbes talk about will be transmitted to the brain via the vagus nerve, but also through the bloodstream, you know, because they, these molecules get into the bloodstream. So a parallel communication system. And then there's a third one that the membrane of many microbes, the so-called gram-negative uh, microbes, either the intact membrane or breakdown products interact with so-called toll-like receptors, it's T-O-L-L, receptors that uh, respond to membrane components and then generate inflammatory signals that go to the brain as well. So we have, we have neuroactive signals that go through the circulation. We have neuroactive signals that go through the vagus nerve. And we have these inflammatory molecules that go through the circulation, through the bloodstream to the brain and affect immune cells within the brain as well. So it's very complicated and all three communication modes really interact with each other. Um, you know, it's it's the system where they, these three channels constantly talk to each other. So you can imagine if you try to figure this out, what microbe does what with which signaling molecule or, or communication channel, it's uh, it's very challenging. Yeah, it's starting to sound a lot like the complexity of the brain itself, right? It is, it is. So, and there's also a, a whole nervous system in the gut too, right? You hear this concept of the second brain. Yeah, and that, you know, the second brain concept has become popularized by a book that came out some 15 years ago, a very prominent uh, neuroscientist, um, Michael Gershon. And in some way, it was very popular, that term, but in, in some ways it's actually a misnomer because it was really the first brain. You know, as I told you, <laughs> right. so the microbes settled the, the GI tracts of these primitive marine animals and helped these marine animals to develop their nervous system, which is a gut-based nervous system. And only later, when these animals developed heads and a polar structure, 
the same principles were then transported to the brain. So the enteric nervous system is really our first brain and our current brain is our second brain. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I'm curious to hear a little more about the ways that our gut and gut microbiome can affect our minds and our emotions and things like that. Um, I know there's been some interesting studies about fecal transplants, changing people's mood or personality. Um, can you share a little bit about that work? Yeah, so a lot of this science has really come from animal studies, you know, where this is relatively easy to do because you can do these fecal transplants and you have laboratory mice that have no microbiome, and then you can add a human microbiome, or you can add a microbiome from a mouse with a different genetic background, with a different emotional behavior. So 90% of that research has come from these mouse experiments. And it's been very challenging to actually reproduce this or translate these animal findings into human findings. Mm. Now, there's, there's more in English language and other languages as well. We always talk about our gut feelings. But to actually pin this down into the same kind of science that we know from the animals, that we can generate a anxiety-prone animal uh, from a calm animal just by doing a fecal microbial transplant, that has not happened in humans, unfortunately. Okay. So we, we can't say that. Um, nevertheless, from what I told you earlier, these communication channels, that influence has to be there. It's just um, to study it in humans with the limitations of what you can do experimentally in a human being is it's been very challenging. But then there is general things, you know, the, the well-being that you feel, the sense of well-being and satiation after a meal, for example. So that, that we understand fairly well. That involves the microbes to a certain degree as well, because these, these satiety hormones in our gut are released in part in response to stimuli from the microbes in our gut. So that's an example where I could say there's good scientific evidence. There's also evidence from the other extreme, you know, the most miserable feeling that anybody could have or does remember is from a gastroenteritis that affects you tremendously in your thinking, your cognitive abilities and, and your emotions. And again, that's something where the microbes obviously play a major role in it. But the more subtle emotions in between, the anxiety and uh, or the depression, much harder to demonstrate, even though there's now a whole field of psychiatry, nutritional psychiatry that you know has been publishing. But if you look at the the more carefully written reviews on this, the investigators always emphasize we have limited evidence in humans to actually prove that. So I would say there's almost there has to be a strong influence. But to tease it out from this complex system is a big challenge. Yes, I can see that. I think whenever we approach such complex systems with like a reductionist scientific lens, we run into a lot of challenges. We've seen that in the meditation literature as well sometimes. So, yeah. Yeah. Since you mentioned the meditation literature, and, and we talked about earlier about this top-down influence. I mean, there are a few studies that um, they're limited 
that a contemplative state has an effect on the microbes and on the, on their functions, that's almost certainly happening. Yes, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, I would bet all my money on it that there's a strong influence. Um, and it would be great with experienced meditators to look at this, not just what microbes are there, but actually what metabolites do they produce? And I should emphasize again, the field has moved rapidly from the early studies where people always looked at these DNA sequencing techniques to study which microbes are there. It's the same kind of tests that you can do now commercially. It doesn't tell you really much about what these microbes do. You know, it just tells mm -hmm. you who's there. But the science has moved rapidly to a field which is called metabolomics or uh, shotgun transcriptomics, where you want to know what genes are expressed by this community of microbes and what molecules are produced by these microbes in, in combination. It's not a single microbe. And yeah, I would bet all my money on it that um, if you did a well-designed study today where you look at this, um, this transcriptome, which genes are being expressed, that a contemplative state would change that um, for sure. And and then from what we know, what happens with these metabolites, that they feed back to the brain. So when we do a meditative state, it always involves the whole loop, you know, from the brain to the gut and then from the gut and the microbes back to the brain. And it it's engages the whole system. Yeah. Oh, that'll be really fascinating. Hopefully that that area of work will will take off. I'm also thinking about your latest book is also about the immune connection to all of this, right? Which we know has a lot of connections to our, our mind states and our and our brain and also our gut. So do you want to say anything about how that weaves into this complex picture? Yeah. So that goes back to the complexity of the gut, you know, and I like to call it the gut connectome. So we all talk about the brain connectome, you know, how the nuclei in the brain are connected. In the gut, it's even more complicated because we have different systems. We have the immune system, we have the hormonal system because the gut produces a lot of hormones. We have the enteric nervous system and we have the microbiome. All these systems interact with each other and particularly, you know, within a very close spatial distance. So the, the microbes are separate from our immune system. And I should say 70% of our immune cells are located in the gut. So the microbes are just microns away from these immune cells and their sensors only separate by a tight layer of cells, so-called epithelium, and by a layer of mucus, um, which makes up the gut barrier. And that separates these immune cells that if activated could kill you from 40 trillion of microbes. So you can imagine the complexity of that uh, engineering feast, you know, that evolution has accomplished. So normally the microbes do not come in touch with the immune system, despite the closeness, provided the mucus layer is intact and provided that the epithelial layer doesn't have gaps in it or increased uh, permeability. And there's many situations today where this is compromised, that barrier is compromised. So certain immune cells, the so-called dendritic cells, they send out these sensors, these tentacles into the mucus layer. And if the mucus layer is thinned by your diet or by chronic stress, then that allows microbes to come in contact with these sensors or the dendritic cells. And then the dendritic cells trigger the whole immune system cascade which initially could sort of be limited to the gut, 
but in many times it goes beyond the gut, and then there is a loosening of the these tight junctions between the epithelial cells. This whole phenomenon that's been called the leaky gut. Yes. And then all of a sudden, fragments of microbes or intact microbes can go into the immune system of the gut and even into the systemic circulation, reaching the brain, for example. Um, so it's um, this is really at the crux of most of our current chronic disease epidemics, you know, from colon cancer to neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's to cardiovascular disease, that compromised interface between the microbes and the immune system is at the core of all these disorders. Wow. Which, when you think about it, what is the main influence on this barrier? It's really two things. One is the diet, and the other one is the influences from, from, from the brain. And they have a similar effect. So chronic stress or allostatic load, it compromises that barrier. So you get an activation of the immune system. But our unhealthy diet, like the standard American diet, you know, with um, high fat, high sugar, and, you know, not enough fiber, all the contaminants, the chemicals in it, they do the same thing. So if you put the two together, the bad diet and the chronic, the allostatic load, which can come from you know, can come as as you know. I'm sure many people have talked about this in your uh, in your show from things like social isolation, loneliness, uh, chronic stress. You know, there's there's a range of negative emotions. All of them have, in some ways, a similar effect on this um, how the brain talks to the gut and facilitates this chronic inflammation. Mm. You can almost say, I mean, the the crux of our current disease epidemic lies in the gut and it lies in this compromised interaction between the microbes and, um, and, and the immune system. Wow. So is it that what you were just saying about the leaky gut and how when that barrier is compromised and parts of whatever's in your gut, including the microbes, can leak out and, and that's what triggers this inflammation and then it's, it can go beyond just inflammation there at the gut. Is that what you mean? It can go systemic and cause all these other kinds of problems? Yeah, yeah, and there's, there's different stages of this compromised uh, barrier. So one is you don't have to have holes in the gut lining, you know, for entire bacteria or food components get into the systemic circulation. If these sensors on these dendritic cells I mentioned in a otherwise intact gut sense that there's microbes too close to them, that already rings the alarm bells and can trigger an inflammation that's limited to the gut. So I always say to audiences, particularly if you see that, you know, 40% are obese or say, you know, that about 40% of you guys are have metabolic syndrome, most likely, which is a condition that indicates that arises from a compromised barrier in the gut and leads to, you know, type 2 diabetes and hypertension and so it's almost like um, hypertension. You don't sense it early on. It's something that goes on silently inside of your gut. Um, you can see it if people look unhealthy, meaning mainly, you know, the best indicator is always obesity, or if you see it, if people are chronically depressed. But we know what, what happens actually, you know, and it's a very scary thing because if you start out with this and at young age, and that seems to be the case because 
many diseases, many chronic diseases are starting earlier and earlier from colon cancer to inflammatory bowel disease um, to type 2 diabetes. It's a phenomenon the last 20 years has happened. It's always a young age group. So an individual who has that at age 15, that will affect longevity or, or you know health span or, or, or lifespan in that individual. They may not know it, you know, until it's too late. So what you were just saying about the compromised barriers and all of this um, immune-based chronic disease that we're suffering, um, what can we do um, to protect our guts and our bodies? Are there tips or changes that we can make? Yeah, this is definitely a challenge because of the multiple factors that contribute. So I told you from the brain alone, you know, social isolation, um, depression, uh, chronic stress, uh, basically a negative state of mind, um, food-related fears. I mean, there's so many factors that come in, you know, from, from the brain side and go down. Yeah, you, first of all, you have to identify who is affected by which of these factors, and you have to deal with those. I usually get a good idea from talking to my patients, even within the hour of the consultation, what are the main uh, areas or what the, the main points of potential uh, interventions are. Uh, that could range from cognitive behavioral therapy to mindfulness-based stress reduction to sometimes um, brain-targeted like antidepressants or anxiolytics. Or uh, so that's one area. The other one is clearly is food, you know, and that's that's in some ways relatively easy from the concept because we know if if you want to do something good for your body, just do what's best for the microbes, and that means. The microbes love complex carbohydrates, which basically are fiber molecules, because they break them down into th these molecules. They're not only food for them, but they also have these health benefits for us, like the short-chain fatty acids. So conceptually, that's very easy. You know, just stick with a healthy diet. But practically, it's multiple barriers that people have. What is a healthy diet too, right? I guess that's... A complex question. Well, no, no, I mean, the healthy diet is is essentially the, the you know Mediterranean type, traditional Mediterranean type diet. It's not the contemporary Italian diet, which is not that healthy anymore because with all the meat and lots of pasta. But um, uh, you know the Mediterranean diet essentially seventy five percent of your food coming from plant based sources, which will provide your microbes with the right molecules to be healthy. It's a diverse diet, so if you just ate, so if you were a vegan and, and you would just eat one type of vegetable uh, for the whole month, it would actually be pretty bad for your microbes. Um, the more different types of fruits and vegetables and seeds you eat, the more micro different type of microbes you need to break that food down so you get diversity, which is really the goal here. You want this most diverse system. And... Then it gets into a whole science, you know, that then you should look at where does this food come from? Is it um, organically grown? Is it grown with the, according to the principles of sustainable organic 
agriculture, which means no chemical fertilizers, it's all organic fertilizers. So it, it gets very complicated. And then I always ask myself, yeah, this may be okay for people in San Francisco and, and West LA and New York maybe, but what about all the rest of the, the US population? You know, They don't have the time to think about it, they don't have the money, and they don't have access to these kind of foods. So it's, it's a pretty grim situation. When we, know, we know all the science, but it's very difficult to get it to the consumers. But if you follow this path of doing everything that's good for your brain, for your nervous system, and everything that's good for your gut, for your gut microbes, you're already doing a lot. Then there's other things, you know, there's sleep. We know that poor sleep affects the gut microbes as well and contributes to the low-grade inflammatory state. We know that extreme exercise has the same negative effect. So while moderate daily exercise is highly recommended and has shown to be beneficial to the diversity, extreme exercise, um, and that's you know triathlon or ultra marathons, actually have the opposite effect. They create the inflammation in the gut just like the unhealthy food does. Because it's a kind of stress to the system? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a stress. So you could almost say um, any form of chronic stress, be it dietary, be it lifestyle-wise, be it um, stressing your brain by lack of sleep, it all converges onto the same end result, you know, increasing your inflammatory state. And because 70% of the immune system is in the gut, it usually starts in the gut. You know, it's it's sort of the central hub. I never thought, you know, when I chose gastroenterology that that would, <laughs> the gut would come out <laughs> as sort of the, the main hub in our system. Yeah. But it seems that it's really the case, you know. It is. It's so interesting. Um, when you were describing it earlier, I don't know why I've never thought about it this way, but it sounds almost like the gut is like another sense organ, right? It's tuned up to sense our entire external environment or whatever's coming into us. Is that, does that make any sense from your perspective? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, when I started to get interested in irritable bowel syndrome, the sensory part of the gut became my main interest, you know, that, and, and we showed in many studies that the increased perception or sensitivity of the gut is the key to explain the symptoms that patients with, um, with IBS have. But that can be expanded because all the mechanisms that um, these 70% of the vagus nerve, you know, that go from the gut to the brain. And the vagus nerve is one of the most complex sensory systems in our body. But then you have the hormonal signals, everything that's being sensed in the gut that comes from outside, but also from the top. You could say, yeah, it is the most complex sensory organ in the body. Yeah, that's fascinating. And you were also talking about um, diversity and the importance of diversity in our microbiome. I've also heard that there's a lot of uh, just ecologically, are we losing diversity in terms of the microbes that are even out there now? Yeah, so there's a film out now, The um, the Invisible Extinction, um, by husband and wife scientists, Marty Blazer and Gloria Dominguez. Great film that has shown this and they've studied this of how how many microbes have already disappeared and they can do this by comparing the remnants of ancient hunter-gatherer groups in, in, in the world like on the Orinoco River in the Amazon rainforest and in East Africa the Hastas people they've shown this they've actually started a project collecting microbes it's like the microbe vault 
where they want to collect microbes before they go e extinct. And this is happening both inside of our bodies, but also obviously outside where in this latest mass extinction phase of, of the planet. Um, but this happens both outside and inside of us. So the, the, the consequences of this are, you know, if you don't find a way to bring those back, those microbes we will, will have permanently lost one of the main hallmarks of a healthy microbiome, the diversity and the richness. So it's not just how many different microbes are there, which is the diversity, but how many of each of those species are there. That's the richness. And um, both of those have been going down. Is that also due to like environmental contamination and things from human activity? Do they know why? The major factor in, in humans in the gut is the antibiotics. You know, the antibiotics are this miracle drug that um, has been invented and has saved millions, hundreds of millions of lives. But at the same time, the irresponsible use of antibiotics for viral infections and, and, and not identified bacterial infections has led to, you know, and, and it starts, it's particularly harmful early in life. So a lot of kids by the age of five have already had 10 courses of antibiotics. Oh. And that's the time where the microbial ecosystem is being established early in life, the first three years, three, four years of life. And it even starts, you know, during pregnancy. So a pregnant mother treated with antibiotics um, will have a compromised microbial ecosystem that has an influence on the developing fetus because the fetal microbiome ecosystem is initially influenced largely by the mother in utero, but then also during delivery, come in contact with the, the, the vaginal microbiome. So we use antibiotics in the delivery room, a prophylaxis of, of staph infections. So we, we bombard the system from very early on. Uh, you know, some people said even even preconception, you know, would would start there, and we've not really changed that significantly. You know, the delivery practices have not really changed dramatically with that science. Marty Blaze's book, The Missing Microbe. If you read this, it's a kind of a grim scenario. You know, what if we continue not just the development of antibiotic resistance that a lot of microbes now are no longer sensitive to our existing antibiotics, but also this decrease in diversity. And it's something that sadly, I just came back from this trip to Brazil and we had, we spent a few days in the rainforest, so the, the Pantanal. So this is an area with the highest diverse biodiversity in, in the world. And you can see in that area within half an hour, you go from, from this amazing rainforest with this abundance of birds and fish and big mammals and you know um and you and you drive out there and then you see these vast areas where the the forest has been cut down mm. and it's all um monoculture of soybeans and corn and not only is it that um, these monocultures they are gmo supported agriculture you know so they spray them with pesticides insecticides it's really painful to go through this transition you know we we almost had this high staying a few days in this lodge in the jungle and seeing macaws and uh, monkeys and tapirs. And it was just amazing. And then you drive out and you see this, this destruction of the, the ecosystem. And 
it really came back to me, this is what we're doing, not to that extreme degree, but in many ways, that's what we're doing to our internal uh, diversity mm. as well, you know. Mm. Yeah. Wow, yeah. So why do you think so? You know, there is hope. So for example, in this area in Brazil, there's all these, these NGOs that um, are aimed at bringing back some of these animals that are threatened by extinction. So there's the Blue Macau Foundation, there's the, the Jaguar Foundation, and they've all been successful. They've mm. been highly successful. So this is something I think we should learn from these people that it's possible to bring these animals back. And, you know, we have, I mean, there are ideas that Dr. Blazer always talks about. We could bring those back if we introduce microbes that have gone extinct, that they store in this vault early on in life when the ecosystem still allows us to introduce new organisms. So one could see a world where, you know, babies, newborns get a fecal microbial transplant or pills that contain consortia, these microbes, early on in life, and then they would have those. So it's definitely, there are ways to counteract it. You know, I'm not sure if humans are really able and willing to change their behavior on the planet anytime soon enough to to prevent some really major, you know, negative things to happen. Yeah, yeah. You were talking about the way that our microbiome is set up so early in life and even impacts from um, the pregnant mother and if she is exposed to antibiotics, for example, like that can impact the developing fetus. I'm wondering, based on what you were saying earlier about stress and things like that, is has there been any research on the mother and conditions in her life? And if there's stress there, does that impact the development from a microbiota perspective of the fetus? Yeah, absolutely. So there's some very elegant animal experiments um, that have shown, you know, that a relatively mild stress, auditory stress of pregnant rat mothers or mouse mothers, that they affect the composition of the vaginal microbiome. And the, the vaginal microbiome is really during delivery, it's a mixture of the gut microbiome and the vaginal, there's both. But that this stress of the pregnant mother would change these microbes. So the infant gets its first inoculus of a compromised microbiome from the mother. Um, and they've shown in this mouse offspring that they had neurological or brain changes in the developing nervous system. So it's quite possible that chronic disease of the mother, which could be an infection, um, you know, there's many studies that suggest that this plays a role in, in autism spectrum. So if, if the mother underwent a viral infection during pregnancy, that that uh, affects the offspring. It's also been shown that Metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, obesity in the pregnant mother affects um, the risk of a, a baby having autism spectrum. It's never that that's the only explanation. You know, you need the vulnerability genes, you need other factors. But I mean, I wish there were more education of mothers, what important role the health of the microbiome plays in the, the healthy development of their babies. Yeah. And it, it's also so complicated, as you were saying before, because even it's it's not always up to us to determine, you know, the stresses around us or the ways that we're exposed to environmental toxins or other kinds of things like that. So there's also systemic factors at play. Yeah.
I would love to bring in, you know, your interest in the contemplative space and kind of thinking more broadly. You've spoken a lot already to the interconnectedness at all of these levels from our the bacteria and microbes that live inside us all the way up to planetary health and environmental destruction and things like that. I'm wondering other insights that or other links that you may draw. One that comes to my mind is thinking about our concept of self and uh, you know, we have all of these organisms living inside of us. And um, it's yet another way of shaking up our idea of that we have some solid self. Um, so just love any reflections on that or anything else from the contemplative side that that you've brought into this. Yeah, I would definitely say that. Um, I mean, it goes into all these definitions, you know, what is the mind and, and, and what is the self? Is the self a an artifact that our brain um, creates to be able to deal most effectively with the world around us. So certainly thinking about these dimensions and the history, you know, we think about billions of years of development of these gigantic microbial communities have more microbes in it than stars in the in in, in, in galaxies. You know, it's so the the number game is phenomenal. So do you think that the sense of self is is something more than an, a useful artifact that our brain in interaction with the environment creates, you know, is 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 kind of not sustainable. I, I I would say, I've always been interested in this, but now I feel it it's even more so. There's also contemplative experiences, you know, that I've had um, both in terms of meditation, but also some experiences in supervised sessions with psychedelics, with particularly, you know, psychedelic mushrooms, psilocybin, where you really get this feeling of being totally connected, of being a part of, of all this around you. You know, we went up this mountain here in Topanga Canyon and sitting there for hours and feeling that, you know, everything moves with your breath and, and, and you're really part of this. That entire separation that we create with our uh, sense of self goes away, you know, and I, I think everybody who's done that has had this same experience. So it's not an isolated subjective thing. It's something that is somewhere stored deep in our mind that we we are part of this. And I, I think it's a, it's a great thing to bring this back. A lot of people will never experience that themselves with a with the help of psychedelics, but to sort of bring this back into the mainstream, scientific mainstream, and uh, connect it with these other insights, you know, this enormous number of these microbial organisms, there must be some kind of an intelligence of that system. You know, just think about hundreds of millions of genes, you know, what's stored in these genes over billions of years. I mean, there must be a tremendous amount of wisdom that I think we're just scratching on the surface of this right now, you know. I mean, I can do this now at this stage of my career. I don't have to write a grant about one organism and one molecule. But quite honestly, it's ridiculous to think that that we can explain any of these phenomena with that reductionistic attitude. You know, it's um, how are we going to study it other than experientially? Uh, it's another question. You know, is this going to be the realm of um, artificial intelligence that a human brain can really not conceptualize the complexity? In science, I think that's a likely scenario. I, I have a feeling, I've talked to a lot of scientists recently, and the answer is always, well, we're going to need artificial intelligence to figure this out. You know, it's too, it's too complex. 
it's so complex on the one side and it's so simple on the other side. You know, just do the lifestyle changes and you'll get the benefit of it. But to figure out scientifically how it all works is going to be tremendously difficult. Yeah, that's really interesting to think about. I was going to ask you, but you're such an uh, accomplished scientist and of course all of our current scientific systems are quite built on reductionism and, and that approach of kind of taking things apart, um, which as we've been saying is not really going to get us too far, I guess, when we're faced with the complexity and interconnectedness of reality. It feels like in a way when you go deeper and deeper into one thing, certainly it's been that way, it seems, in your career, you start to expand, you know, you you see, if you do it well, you see the interconnections more and more and more. Um, and at a certain point, our, our current scientific approach seems to break down. Yeah, and I should say, you know, there's kind of two sides to it. Our current scientific approach has worked really well for some things. I mean, like yes. the COVID-19 vaccine development, phenomenal success, you know, saved hundreds of millions of people. Antibiotics were phenomenal success, you know, and they were based on reductionism. Uh, yeah. So it's more these chronic disorders and to understand, you know, the link with uh, what we talked about with the environmental changes and that you just can't solved with a reductionistic attitude. So I sort of like to, you know, divide our diseases or health problems into these chronic non-contagious diseases, which range from, you know, some forms of cancer, chronic heart disease, um, chronic liver disease, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, on the one side, which is probably our biggest problem. Then we have the pandemics. For the pandemics, our reductionistic uh, approach is actually pretty good, partially, even though that doesn't take into account the vulnerability factors, which go more into this other category, because people that that have these chronic diseases are more vulnerable to the pandemics. Um, and then we have, uh, you know, other diseases for like surgery or, uh, you know, uh, acute injuries. Medicine has been phenomenal. I mean, like it's, but it's not doing the same thing for all these different areas. I think that's what we have to realize. Yeah. I know that you're, um, or you are going to be involved in a new project, a film project about the interconnected planet. Do you want to share anything about that? Okay. So the, the, the film project, the initial film project is actually going to be a documentary on PBS, which will come out in December. And the working title of this is uh, The Mind Got Immune Connection. It started with our conceptualization of this interconnected planet project, which we have put on the back burner for now. We really want to focus on the on the PVS piece. Yeah, I have to say I've I've become maybe obsessed is not the right concept, but the concept of interconnectedness, which obviously is at the center of contemplative practices and um, and Buddhism. Once you look at the world with, with different glasses, you know, you see it really explains a lot of the things that we have not taken into account in our, you know, how we interact with the, with, with the world. When we conceptualized this interconnected planet project, we wanted not a negative thing, showing all the negative things that are happening in the world, because that's really depressing. We're definitely at a time where multiple factors going in the same downhill direction. We want to make it a positive thing. and. Uh, we sort of conceptualize this is that it's the feminine energy, um, you know, the difference between the male and the female brain. Clearly the reductionism, linear thinking, uh, you know, all the things we see today, 
are a creation of the male brain. Um, and we're in the midst of this revolution, this paradigm shift towards looking at it more in, um, you know, in, 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 in feminine terms. And I, I still find that extremely intriguing. And I think it is unfolding um, rapidly, actually. I would even go so far as think that's the only solution to the world's problems to at all the levels from the politicians to to the to the science to the kind of medicine it just needs to have a balance between this extreme that we've been going have been practicing the last 100 years to um so I still hope we will make that film you know it's it's just too exciting to think about it yeah, well, it sounds really important. When you were talking about the, uh, you know, male and female brain, or maybe you could say male and female archetypes or energy, that kind of a more broad concept, the male typically being associated with reductionist thinking or, or separating things. And then can you say more about the move towards the female and like what is represented in that, at least in this archetypal, you know, I don't, I don't want to make too much of like strong divisions, but I hear what you're saying for sure. Yeah, I mean, so there is something obviously going on now in, in society, you know, that we don't talk about male and female. We talk about the continuum and all this, but it doesn't really affect that. Um, so, you know, it's a lot of men who have the female archetype and and vice versa. So with with women, if you look at evolution, female animals and, and humans have always had the task of taking care of the offspring. There was the guarantee that the species survived and they probably could have done it without the males fighting constantly, you know. So, but they also had to nurture and take care and protect the offspring. So it's a totally different priority the way they look at the world or have looked at the world. And it goes back to, to animals. And I think this thinking of connectedness and uh, not the fight and flight patterns, but uh, like the tend of protect sort of attitude. I, I think it goes in simplistic terms that the female brain looks at the world more in terms of interconnectedness. We clearly as a society, you know, with, with all this dramatic changes now, the role of uh, females in science and politics and all the professions sort of taught our female students the male principles. But But I think you can already see that Women are not just accepting that, you know, they're modifying it based on their own experiences. So that's the hope. I think there's a phase where females became super males in order to succeed. But then there's going to be a phase where they're actually going to be implement the more, you know, feminine view of connectedness and, and, and the view of the world. So that's my sense of optimism. Mm, beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Emron. This has really been fascinating, and I really appreciate you taking the time to share this wisdom with us today. We'll look forward to your future work. Yeah, thanks, Wendy. It was really a, a joy and a privilege to be on the show. This episode was edited and produced by me and Phil Walker, and music on the show is from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal. Show notes and resources for this and other episodes can be found at podcast.mindandlife.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. And if something in this conversation sparked insight for you, let us know. You can send an email or voice memo to podcast at mindandlife.org. Mind and Life is a production of the Mind and Life Institute. 
Visit us at mindandlife.org, where you can learn more about how we bridge science and contemplative wisdom to foster insight and inspire action towards flourishing. If you value these conversations, please consider supporting the show. You can make a donation at mindandlife.org under support. Any amount is so appreciated, and it really helps us create this show. Thank you for listening.